From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. In a world where rational scientific explanations are more available than ever, belief in the unprovable and irrational in fringe is on the rise. From Atlantis to aliens, from Flat Earth to the Loch Ness Monster, the list goes on. Enter Colin Dickey, cultural historian and tour guide of the weird. With the same curiosity and insight that made Ghostland a hit with readers and critics, Colin looks at what all fringe beliefs have in common, explaining that today's Illuminati is yesterday's Flat Earth. The attempt to find meaning in a world stripped of wonder. On this week's PreserveCast, things are about to get weird as we enter the unidentified. Mythical monsters alien encounters, and our obsession with the unexplained. Hey, this is Nick here, and I want to thank you for listening. Your downloads help us out a great deal and are attracting a lot of interest to this podcast. As you probably know, or I hope you do, PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and we depend on listener support to keep us preserving. So consider making a quick donation today at PreserveCast.org and give us a five-star review. It actually helps. Also, our friends at Cheap Old Houses are helping support our work by donating all the proceeds from their sale of Save All the Old Houses pin until September 18th. So head over to presmd.org pin and get one so you can show your old house pride. Thanks. Now, let's get weird. Colin Dickey is a writer, speaker, and academic, and has made a career out of collecting unusual objects and hidden histories all over the country. He's a regular contributor to the LA Review of Books and Lapham's Quarterly, and is the co-editor of the Morbid Anatomy Anthology. He's also a member of the Order of the Good Death, a collective of artists, writers, and death industry professionals interested in improving the Western world's relationship with mortality. With a PhD in comparative literature from the University of Southern California, he's an associate professor of creative writing at National University. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're very excited to be joined by Colin Dickey, uh, who is the author. We've actually spoken with him before about his other hit book, Ghostland, but now we're going to be talking with him about The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. Um, so, Colin, it's a pleasure to have you back. Excited to talk with you about this new book. Um, just for listeners who maybe didn't hear our first episode, or just to ask you again, where did you grow up? And I suppose, what got you interested in, in this aspect of, of history and, and human nature? Um, yeah, well, thanks for having me back on. It's great, it's great to be back. Um, let's see, I grew up in San Jose, California, and um, I guess coincidentally or not, that, um, that town has, has now played a prominent part in, in both my last two books. Um, San Jose, California, which is Pretty, a pretty banal suburb in a lot of ways. There's not too much interesting going on, but it does have two pretty eccentric claims to fame, one of which is the, uh, the Winchester Mystery House, which uh, was a, a focal point of my last book, Ghostland, um, which is supposedly one of the most haunted houses in the United States. It's this sprawling 161-room Victorian mansion uh, built by Sarah Winchester, was the daughter-in-law of the guy who uh, sort of pioneered the Winchester rifle. And um, there's, there's lots of really bizarre um, stories swirling around the construction of that house. And, um, you know, and uh, that's, that's what kind of uh, became, you know, kind of the anchor for my last book. Uh, the other cool thing that, that San Jose has to offer is the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum, which is this um, sort of bizarre Egyptian temple that rises up out of the suburbs that was built by 
this guy, Harvey Spencer Lewis, who um, uh, assembled a, a, a really stand-up Egyptology collection. It, it remains one of the best um, collections of Egyptian artifacts uh, west of the, um, the Mississippi. And um, but he he advocated a number of sort of eccentric beliefs, including the the idea that um, California was itself a remnant of the lost continent of Lemuria, and that. Um, uh, underneath Mount Shasta is the 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 fabled city of Telos, where the Lemurians um, exist. And so, you know, so this book uh, being among other things about about lost continents like Atlantis and Lemuria, um, I once again found myself back in San Jose, sort of spelunking the the weirdness there. Yeah, this this book definitely touches on the weirdness, and you get a, a taste for the weirdness. But it's not just a book about weird things; it's also about why we believe the things we do, I suppose, and and how how much that has has changed even in recent years. Um, so, for people who have read Ghostland, um, what should they be prepared for in the unidentified? What, how would you sort of summarize the book um, for people who are who might be interested in picking it up? I mean, for me, this is like my sort of weirdly. I mean, okay, so we we start with the sort of obvious difference. You know, Ghostland was about um, haunted places and sort of you know why certain structures come to be known as haunted and what those stories say about ourselves. That's uh, the unidentified moves into cryptids like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Jersey Devil, um, uh, as I mentioned, you know, the lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria, and also um, UFOs and aliens. Um, but I think for me, as I was putting this book together, one thing that made sense to me in my head was that I felt very much that Ghostland was a book about or not, not about, but a book that was heavily involved in the question of, of, of architecture, of spaces. Like, why do we, you know, how do we live in the, in the, in the places that we build? How do, how do we inhabit these, these buildings of various kinds? And I, as I was working on this book, it occurred to me, this is a book about um, uh, the wilderness and, um, you know, frontiers and margins and sort of the edges of civilization. So I, you know, the, the connecting thread that, that, Kind of stood out to me after a while was this idea that you know uh, Bigfoot is a is a creature that lives in you know the the uh, redwood forests of Northern California so sort of you know near San Francisco but not you know sort of just outside just where things get wild whereas you know Area 51 where you know supposedly you know the government has aliens is you know likewise it's sort of in the Nevada desert on the edge of Las Vegas just sort of just outside of civilization into kind of this kind of you know wilderness zone. And I, I kind of found myself going back and back to that through through these various, you know, investigations and pieces, sort of thinking about how we kind of, you know, uh, we kind of populate these these areas just outside of civilization with these kind of strange creatures, for better or for worse. Yeah, it's sort of funny because, in a way, I guess we're scared of the places we live in. We're also scared of the places we don't live in. So, where <laughs> there doesn't seem to be a safe space for humans, I don't. I don't know if that's like a, a suburban strip mall or something. We haven't uh, imbued them with much sense of uh, at least terror yet. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's weird, especially because um, it's funny you say suburban strip mall because you know as I was kind of moving through the genealogy of some of these, you know, spaces, what I, I ultimately ended up talking about were um, FEMA camps, um, this idea that, you know, the government has prepared these disused industrial spaces that at any moment they're going to be used to round up, uh, you know, good American citizens. And, and again and again, you find um, conspiracy theorists who argue that, that various um, disused Walmarts 
and other sort of empty big box stores are, you know, sites for future FEMA camps. So it's not even the suburban strip mall anymore. It's sort of, you Nothing know, like, is safe. Yeah. And I, I think, I think it's fair to say that, um, we, it's a sort of fundamental component of, of human nature to kind of project, um, the, this kind of sense and unease and uncanny onto, onto the surface level around us. And I think that is something, I mean, like I grew up, you know, like a big fan of like noir and that's, that's the premise of noir, right? The premise of noir is that, um, you know, just below the everyday normal surface, there's something terrible and terrifying that you will never really understand and you will never be able to defeat or, or cope with. And if you, you know, go poking around in there, all you'll find is your doom, you know? And so I think that that's like, that's a kind of, you know, uh, a steady feature of, of human consciousness, this belief that, you know, lurking beneath the surface is, is something terrible that is waiting for us whenever we're ready. And that sort of seems like 2020, like we have, de- we have delved into the noir, the noir has been opened, right? Like, <laughs> right. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this whole sense of like, you know, things were normal and, and now they're not normal, um, you know, was kind of how a lot of people felt, I think, you know, for like 2017 or so, but you know, the longer we've been here, the more it's been clear, like, oh, things were never normal. We just kind of had a little bit of like a kind of superficial patina that pretended everything was normal. And once once things started to go wrong, things went wrong in a big way because things were always wrong. Um, yeah. that's, that's my optimistic thought for this morning. <laughs> so one of the things that you write in the book, I, guess, I think it's early in the book, you talk about how there was a survey done that showed between 2015 and 2018, in both cases, belief both in Bigfoot, Bigfoot rather, and alien visitations, both of them almost doubled. And they went from like 11 to 21% and 20 to 40%. And that's like a really short period of time, right? Like we, you know, to see human emotion and human understanding, human beliefs change that much in like three years. Wh- what on earth is going on with like, with the way we think? Yeah, you know, it was interesting to me when I started this book. Um, originally, it was it was much more about like conspiracy theories, like writ broadly. So, you know, there was I cast a, a wider net in my original, you know, the original book proposal and the original drafting. I was looking at a bunch of different conspiracy theories, and um, overwhelmingly, a lot of those were really paranoid and pessimistic in ways that um, were were sort of hard for me to get a handle on. And when I when I narrowed the focus down to um, you know, as I said, sort of crypto, cryptozoology, you know, Bigfoot and, and friends um, and UFOs uh, and lost continents. Like what I found was I found a kind of a mix of two kind of competing human emotions, which I think speak to your question, you know, like what has happened, you know, like on the one hand, I think a lot of this is about a kind of paranoia and anxiety and fear that has been ramped up. Um, you know, in the past couple of years, and there's a lot of factors going into that, everything from the political situation to social media to, you know, other global changes. Um, but the second, the second thought is a kind of desire for wonder or magic, which I think has simultaneously sort of ramped up. And I, again, I think there's a, a various, um, you know, set of factors that have influenced that. But I think like, what you see in these in the in the rise of these beliefs is you see these kind of parallel tracks. One of which is about a desire for for a kind of reenchanted or or you know a world that's once again a little bit magical, a little bit unexplained, a little bit mysterious, and then simultaneously an increasing sense of anxiety and fear. And the, those two um, impulses, I think, drive a lot of of these beliefs. 
Do you is is there is there a sort of a, a historical precedent for all of this? Like, did our ancestors go through periods of times like this? I mean, since this is sort of a history preservation podcast here, I like to bring it back to the history, and I know that you have a real sense for that too. Like, is this is this without precedent, or do you see this happening kind of cyclically? Well, yeah, again, it was interesting for me coming off a book about ghosts because, you know, ghosts are um, a belief that, you know, human culture has has always had, you know, from since written recorded history, we've had ghost stories, you know, for whether or not you believe them or not, you know, they're they're part of a human, a kind of fundamental human psyche. And when I went looking for these stories, I found them much more historically grounded. And, and, and my, my take, uh, my sense was that there are, there are a couple of factors that really start in the 19th century that drive um, the, the current articulation of, of how we think of things like, like cryptids. Um, like, for example, like we've always had a world filled with monsters, right? You know, I mean, there's always been, you know, strange things. And again, that, that goes back to, you know, Gilgamesh and the Bible and whatever. Um, but in, in the late 18th and into the 19th century, you had the rise of Linnaean classification, which is this idea that, like, science could actually taxonomize and name every single creature out there, you know, and so, um, so the, the, you know, the, the awful kraken becomes, you know, the giant squid and, you know, like um, things that used to be sort of fearsome monsters now have names, you know, and they, you know, and so there is a kind of um, uh, what gets called a kind of disenchantment of the world, right? You know, this idea that like, you know, no longer are there, are there going to be strange monsters or th- unknowable things, anything that is out there can be known. Um, and, and that, that really kind of tracks into the, the second half of the 19th century. And it is in the wake of that, that you start to see things like the rise of like cryptozoology and the rise of, um, beliefs in, in things that, you know, sometimes, you know, get named after Charles Fort, you know, AKA, you know, Fortian things, things that are, um, stubbornly unknowable, you know, that, that it sort of exists outside the realm of, of science science's ability to name those things. Um, so yeah, so it's a much more recent and historically grounded phenomenon that I found myself tracing in this book. And I, I think it really comes out of a rise of a shift in how we understand the world. We understood the world in the 19th century. So I th- I, it's, it's interesting you brought up Charles Fort because I was going to bring him up next. I mean, from you know Lemurians, which you've already brought up to the meat showers, uh, that you describe, <laughs> yes, meat showers. Um, you you also have this central theme in addition, sort of this disenchantment and and sort of this the sci- the scientific piece of this that there's also right now this deep thread of sort of and you've touched on it with FEMA camps and stuff. This distrust of science of government. I mean, we see that every day now, um, not just with this, but and it and it's something that you know hucksters take advantage of, like a Charles Fort or conspiracy lovers are like just ready to, to take it all in. Um, and I'm curious, is this unique to the United States or do we see this everywhere or are we just, is it right now something that's hyper focused here in the U S? Oh, I don't think it's unique to the United States. And I think it's, it's a, it's an ongoing issue. And I think one of the things that's, that gets lost in our current moment, you know, when, when I feel like, you know, we're, we're sort of pushing back so hard against, you know, climate denialists and, you know, intelligent design people and stuff like that. And we're really having, trying to sort of advocate that science is objective and, and good, which in many cases it is, but it's also not infallible. And I think, you know, I mean, particularly, well, like, so what I, what I found in the, in the book is, 
you know, like you, again, you think about the, the late 19th century, science was as good as the scientists doing it, you know? And so, you know, I mean, of course we know that there, there was lots of, um, you know, racial and ge gender inequities like baked into scientific understanding and all these things. And so, so science and sci scientific establishment sort of becomes institutionalized in the 19th century. This idea that you have now professional organizations, you have universities, and now if you want to make a scientific discovery, you can't just be a kind of splendid amateur in your room with a with a microscope, um, you know, or experiment in your backyard. Now you need funding, you need a PhD, you need a, you know, like a, a research lab. So there's this move towards a kind of professionalization of science, which triggers, again, a kind of backlash where you get people who really want to kind of um, celebrate amateurism. And, and, you know, most prominently, I think you see that with, with cryptozoologists and, and kind of the guys who, and they're usually guys, not always, um, who are like, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get a PhD in primatology. I'm gonna go out on the weekend with my buddies and I'm gonna bag a Bigfoot, you know, which is a very different kind of way of thinking about science. Um, so, so there, you know, I, I, I do want to push back a little bit against the idea that science is this like good and pure and truthful monolithic force because, um, because I think that's disingenuous. Although I, at the same time, I also want to say, you know, vaccinate your kids, uh, climate science is real, um, you know, evolution is real. So it's like, you know, right. we're, we're at this real moment where it's like, there's so many bad faith attacks that it's really hard to have good and productive, constructive criticisms about science. And, right. um, but I, I guess uh, to circle back to your question about the United States, I mean, it, I think that you can point to a series of shocks, um, you know, particularly in the United States in the 70s and 80s, but you know, again, with global implications. And I think you, know, you, could, you could talk about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, you can talk about the Challenger disaster, you can talk about the botched response to the AIDS pandemic, and you can see, you can talk about the, the tobacco lawsuits, you can see the ways in which um, science via government and uh, big business and big pharma um, really failed uh, American citizens in a, in a dramatic, spectacular way. It sort of revealed itself to be both sort of arrogant and also uncaring. And, and so um, those shocks, I think, had additional reverberations, you know, that triggered things like the anti-vax movement and, and other things that sort of, you know, rose out of that where people, you know, we haven't, we haven't had that kind of truth and reconciliation um, moment that we probably need to, to sort of come together once again and, and, and re-articulate, you know, what is good science, what is bad science, how are we going to build consensus as a community, how are we going to ensure that these scientific edifices take care of our citizens, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a long-winded answer to that question. No, I, I, I think it's very interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of truth and reconciliation, we haven't even had, on the political side, we haven't had that since Vietnam, right? Like, Americans' belief and trust in the government really plummeted after that. Um, and so I, th I think you're right. I think it's just we've never, like, we've never had that moment where the, the American family comes to the kitchen table and is like, all right, we need to get our, you know, our S on the table here and figure this stuff out, you know? We've, we haven't had that. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's, it's gotten to the point where it's sort of increasingly schizophrenic where, you know, in, in, our, in our contemporary current moment, you have, um, I mean, you have people on the right who say they distrust government. Um, but yet have complete 100% faith in the president of the United States, which is sort of an open contradiction in terms, you know, and, um, you know, on the, on the left, you also have people sort of, you know, you know, uh, 
uh, sort of celebrating uh, governmental norms at the same time that they have, you know, sort of legitimate fears that, you know, uh, they are, are being targeted or being, you know, arrested without due process, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so, you know, again, what I tried to do in the book um, is like with, with cryptids or, or the lost continent of Atlantis, like you either believe Nessie, the Loch Ness monster exists or you don't, but you don't think that um, the government is hiding um, evidence of the Loch Ness monster. Whereas if you believe in, in UFOs, almost by default, you believe that the government knows more than, than they're letting on. And so for me, what was interesting was to take two different kind of spheres of belief um, you know, cryptids and UFOs and trace them historically and, and see how, you know, one of them became bound up in a kind of question about, um, you know, science and biology and naturalism and what do we know and who knows it and that kind of thing. And the other one became quickly about the government. Um, the other one became quickly about um, conspiracy and paranoia. And so, you know, while this wasn't quite explicitly a book about, you know, conspiracy theories writ large, what I tried to do is I tried by tracing the history of, of UFO belief um, in the United States, particularly from World War II on, is to say that this is how a desire for wonder and a desire for magic and a desire for, you know, something out there in the world, how that over time can evolve to become something, um, you know, really poisoned and paranoid where you're convinced that you know, the abandoned Walmart is going to be a future home for, um, you know, the rounding up of, of citizens in, in concentration camps. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting journey and definitely something people should pick up. Um, we're talking with Colin Dickey, who is the author behind The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. Uh, and this would be a great place to take a quick break. We'll come back, uh, have a few more questions uh, before we end our interview here with Colin. We'll be right back on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about an influential force for good in Baltimore, Sally Michael, read by Jana Carey, Director of Operations at Preservation Maryland. Sally Michael. Sally Michael was an understated force who helped to make a city. In the 1970s, she won a $20 auction bid to have lunch with then-Mayor William Donald Schaefer. It turned into a lifelong collaboration of creative problem-solving and coalition-building. Her daughter, Carter Brigham, wrote, Mayors, congressmen, and young Baltimore City children all came under her purview. Her dinners and salons generated ideas that grew into much of the landscape and institutions of modern-day Baltimore. During her lifetime, she was on the board of 57 local and state organizations, chairing 19 of them. They included the Walters Art Museum, the University of Maryland School of Social Work, and the Baltimore Planning Commission that developed the National Aquarium, Center Stage Theater, and Harbor Place. 
She was a founder and supporter of the Baltimore School for the Arts, which opened in 1979 and introduced thousands of influential Baltimoreans to the school. In 1983, Mayor Schaefer asked Michael to develop a private-public partnership to enhance the city's parks. The result was the Parks and People Foundation, which became a national model for urban parks, recreation, and community environmental work. She also worked to establish the Baltimore-Chesapeake Bay Outward Bound School. More than 77,000 people have gone through the program held at Lincoln Park. In 1996, she organized Super Kids Camp, an enriched reading program for elementary school children to provide experiences that also included horseback riding, sailing, music, acting, and painting. She gave every summer camper a copy of The Little Engine That Could. Every day of her adult life, she repeated her high school motto, help us to remember that what we keep, we lose, and only what we give remains our own. Sally Michael died in August 2018. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. Today we are joined in studio by Colin Dickey, the author of The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained, which is currently available wherever you get your books. Uh, I read it on my Kindle, uh, and it was a quick, fantastic read and, and definitely encourage people to pick it up. Um, we've had some really philosophical conversations here, so we'll go a little bit more rapid fire as we move to the conclusion. Uh, I did mention meat showers, and I thought maybe you could just... I don't. I, I hate to bury that term and not give that any uh, explanation. You want to maybe touch on that a little bit in Charles Fort? Yeah, right. No, and I, I, I feel like it's my job to, uh, if I do anything with this book, it is to it is to bring the great Kentucky meat shower to the fore of public consciousness. So, um, right. So in, um, in, in uh, Olympia Springs, Kentucky, which is in Bath County, right on the, the edge of West Virginia, um, in 18, oh man, I'm, I'm blanking on the, I think it's 1873, am I right? Uh, I'm now, right, anyways, it's in the book. It's in the, go yeah. read the book. You'll get the details. Go read the book. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sunny March day. There's not a cloud in the sky. Uh, this woman is out with her, her grandson and uh, chunks of meat begin falling from the sky um, over like about a hundred square foot area. Um, you know, these, these meat, meat chunks, some of which are a couple inches in diameter just fall out of the sky. And um, again, you can, you, you, whatever you think happened, this, this happened. This wasn't a hoax. This wasn't a, a hallucination. Uh, the townspeople arrived. They, they, they gathered up the meat. They put the meat in jars. There were a couple guys who, extremely brave souls, tried to, um, tried to taste it to see if they could identify it by taste. That did not go well. Um, you know, and then for, for a while, this became a sort of question. This became bandied about in scientific journals where, you know, people were like, what the heck is this meat? You know, there, there were sort of different, um, different, you know, theories proposed and sort of evaluated and then abandoned. And um, I, there's, there's a commonly accepted explanation for the meat shower, but personally, I think it's not a great one. I think it's, I don't think it actually works very well. And so I don't, feel that I, I came to the end of the book feeling like I wanted to say exactly what the meat shower was, right. um, you know, but, um, but anyway, so, so the meat shower then becomes, I first read about the meat shower in the works of, of Charles Ford um, and Charles Ford's 1919 book, the, the book of the damned, where he collects all manner of these phenomenon. 
um, you know, he's probably most famous uh, for chronicling various uh, reigns of like frogs and fish. Um, so, you know, people who've seen the movie Magnolia, they will, they will recognize the Fortean touches in that. And, um, and, and Charles Fort's idea, you know, the idea of the Book of the Damned is his idea is like, there are, there are facts, there are, there are stories, anecdotes, reports that are, are, are damned by science. They're excluded by science. They're treated as these sort of um, untouchable, un, unspeakable things, but yet they happen. And so the Book of the Damned is this, this collection of things that sort of um, exist outside of the, the realm of what science can know. And I think, um, you know, I mean, and what, what's great about Ford is that in his best moments, he doesn't try to, to give a solution. He just sort of lays this stuff on the table. He does it every so often try and argue a, a hypothesis, but every time he does, it sucks. And it's so much better when he's just, um, just kind of laying this stuff out. And, and that's thus, thus the term Fortean, which is, you know, this idea of these kind of unknowable, unexplainable things, which um, informed a lot of the book. Right. And, uh, and that's a fantastic explanation of the meat showers. And I forgot about the connection with the, the frogs and the fish. Um, so watch out if, and if you see things falling from the sky, Colin may chronicle you in a future, in a future book. We never know. Um, so a uh, couple rapid fire questions here. Do you Colin Dickey believe in UFOs? Um, you know, th I think that's, a, that's one of those questions that's really, it's really broad. Do I believe that there is... Well, right. Because the way I asked it is, or I guess the way I asked it is, do you believe in unidentified flying objects? And in that case, that's a pretty easy thing to believe in, right? Because there can be things that are unidentified. Yeah. Do I believe that there are things that fly that I don't know what they are? Yes, sure. You know, do I believe that there is somewhere um, in the universe... Um, Extra, you know, an extraterrestrial life seems almost certain. Um, do I believe that that extraterrestrial life has developed some kind of sentience or civilization? Ah, sure. Um, do I believe that that extraterrestrial life has developed the capability to uh, travel at the speed of light through the universe? Nah, less so. Do I believe that that civil that 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 alien life has been able to master interplanetary travel? got as far as earth and then crashed um no like that's a hard you know like if they if they met if they can figure out how to fly here they ought to be able to stick the landing is my feeling right so like the you know the sort of story that like you know they got all this way and then you know like just right at the end just kind of you know botched the landing and crashed like that so right so it's like I believe in a lot of these things, um, but but the more tangible things get, the the harder it is, I think, to to hang on to these beliefs because they require such an elaborate set of suspensions of disbelief to sort of fit, make the narrative fit. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I think one <laughs> kind of along those lines. I remember, I think it was Bill Maher who once said, like. For people who believe in conspiracies about big government and the deep state, they're like, have you ever seen how the government operates? Like, how, how could they possibly keep these secrets? Um, which is kind of a funny way of looking at it, but it, it does it does require sort of the suspension of disbelief. And I think you also point out, it might be early in the book, um, this idea that people see patterns where they don't otherwise exist. Um, and we have a knack for kind of putting weird things together and making a pattern. Yeah, I mean, again, like, you know, the, a thing when people ask me about, you know, do you think this conspiracy theory is true or whatever? 
Um, a thing that I, I default to is, you know, I mean, we, we know there are government conspiracies and we've unearthed them, you know, uh, Watergate and Iran-Contra. And like, you know, when usually is the case that when people start looking for uh, a conspiracy theory, they find evidence of it quite quickly. You know, and, and you know, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, as I like to point out, I mean, they got a lot of their information from secretaries. They got a lot of their information from like you know, um, you know, admin administrative assistants who were not part of the grand cabal, but like were the ones who did the, the document shredding and wrote the checks and that kind of stuff. And so the, the you know, the Area 51 conspiracy theories, um, they presuppose a bureaucratic infrastructure that involves a lot of entry level minimum wage jobs. You know, somebody's got to cook that food. Somebody's got to take out that trash. And it's harder and harder to sustain the idea that uh, people making 20 bucks an hour have an investment in keeping these grand secrets from the world, you know, especially once people start asking and start asking questions, because that's usually how these things, you know, get, get unraveled. So, you know, do I believe there are government conspiracies? Yeah, we know there are, you know, the, the question is, are they this far reaching, this totalizing and this hermetically sealed, you know, and as you say, like, it's uh, the government is not that good. <laughs> um, one last uh, rapid fire here. Uh, Bigfoot. Is he out there? Are we going to find him? You know, this is another one that, that is, that is hard for me because um, you know, in the, when Bigfoot sort of first sort of bursts onto the, the kind of American consciousness in the, um, in the fifties and sixties, you, you have these stories of, you know, these guys are like, I don't know, I was camping and I saw this thing in a clearing and I, I grabbed my camera or my, you know, um, you know, my Super 8 uh, camera and I, I managed to get one blurry photograph or just, you know, a few seconds of, the, of a, a video and you can watch that and you say, oh, oh my gosh, that, you know, who knows, maybe that's real. And, and now everybody's got iPhones, everybody's got high def cameras in their pockets all the time. And so again, statistically speaking, if, if people were finding these things, um, we should probably have really good video of them by now. And, you know, and I, 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 I spent some time with some, some Bigfoot hunters who showed me some, some pictures, sort of grainy pictures of forest. And we're like, you know, see, that's, that's an arm, that's a face. And I, and again, like you, you can see patterns where if you look at a grainy photo uh, forest long enough, you will see a face, I guarantee it. Um, you know, but does that mean that there are, are, you know, there's Bigfoot out there? Yeah. But, you know, what I will say is like, there's, there are still a lot of animals out there that we haven't discovered. And that, that's, again, one of the great things about science. And, and in fact, there was a, um, a primate species discovered in Africa within the last decade, like a brand new primate species. So um, it's not the case that there aren't new and strange and wonderful creatures out there to be discovered. Um, what, cryptozoologists tend to do is they tend to sort of think of these things as lying outside of scientific taxonomy. And, and I think that's a really interesting contradiction. Interesting. Well, this has been really fun and so interesting to get a chance to talk with you about this, this fantastic book, The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained, uh, which you can pick up now. If people want to learn more about you or your previous books or what's coming up next, where can they find you? Um, I mean, my website, colindickey.com. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram most vocally. Uh, and in both cases, it's just my name. Um, but yeah, um, you know, find me on Twitter and say hi or, 
you know, shoot me an email or something like that. I, I love to talk about this stuff uh, all the live long day. So yeah. Yeah. If there's a meat shower in your community, let Colin know. Yeah, definitely. Call me first. Call me first. Yeah. <laughs> um, and before we go, final question here. What is your favorite historic site or place? Uh, my favorite historic site or place is, geez, uh, where to even start? Um, is it bad if I say the Winchester Mystery House? Since no. it, was like, it was like the first, it, it was the form no. of consciousness in my mind. That, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with that. It's a, it's a creepy place and something you can learn more about if you pick up Ghostland. Colin, this has been a pleasure. We appreciate so much having you with us and uh, looking forward to seeing what you write next. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. This has been super fun. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.